Computer, initialize Holosuite. On this incredible episode of Starpod Trek, we consider the Star Trek and science contents of Starlog Magazine issues 13 and 14 from 1978. The Scotch Trekker Dan Leckie fills us in about the new movie that Leonard Nimoy will be featured in, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Nathan Allen takes us on a trip through our galaxy in interplanetary excursions. Bob Turner and Kelly Casto consider the Trek report, including the latest news about how Star Trek Phase Two became the motion picture. Remember when John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, and the cast of Saturday Night Live spoofed Star Trek? Starlog Magazine provided the script to the show for those of us who didn't have a Betamax recorder. Listen to The Last Voyage of the Starship Enterprise. All this and more on Starpod Trek. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. On each episode of Starpod Trek, we open up two issues of Starlog Magazine and discuss the Star Trek and science-related articles. We also consider what it was like to be a Trekkie decades ago. If you are listening to us on a podcast app, make sure that you find our YouTube channel for bonus content and Star Trek episode reviews. Please join our Facebook group. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. So we will be attending and giving a panel at CAGCon. Tell us a little bit about CAGCon. CAGCon is the, will probably be annual convention that the Klingon Assault Group does. They just started last year. So the one this year will be June 4th through the 6th. And our panel will be Vulcan History and Culture, and it'll be at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. But also, the con will have um, a lot of great panels all weekend. And this is an online convention, and it's free? Yes, totally free. It'll be on Discord. You can find the link on Facebook at CAGCon 2021. They'll also have a costume contest, vendor's room, author and artist alley, and live performances, so it'll be great fun. And we're members of CAG, that is the Klingon Assault Group. We're going to put a link in our show notes. It's a free Klingon culture fan club, but not only Klingon culture, but any aliens that are featured in Star Trek. So we're huge Romulan and Vulcan fans, so that's what we represent primarily, as well as Andorians. Yes, we'll be doing our panel on Vulcans, and also after our panel... They will have Mark Nacaredo, who did the uh, the Romulan War fan film, and he's still working on more of that series. He's a local member in Tennessee, so we highly recommend supporting his independent Star Trek projects. The Klingon Assault Group is a, is a group of fans who love Star Trek, costuming, Klingons, and just having fun. We're a bunch of Klingons international. Kapla! A lot of fan clubs take it, take it way too seriously. 
but how can you take it seriously when you're wearing a rubber head and a wig? We know we're silly, and we love it. To be or not to be, that is the question. One of the main things with Klingons is blood, blood and honor. Uh, is blood drives. What we do is we challenge different clubs to donate more blood than we do, and they always lose. We always win. Normally, we take the blood from our enemies, put it in buckets, and then give it to the Red Cross. We are Klingon. We are a family that does this together. Ma we recently got back from MetrothamCon, which is a convention in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and we presented the panel there entitled Star Trek on Paramount Plus. How did that panel go? What did you think about the convention? The panel went very well, and the convention was a lot of fun, too. It was our first time going to that one. So we had a good group of Star Trek fans that came to our panel, and uh, we had a very good, engaging, and lively discussion and the con itself had the dealer's room, and they had several panels and celebrities there. It, it was a lot of fun. Including Star Trek Continues alumni Vic Mignogna. And we always like seeing Vic. He's a really warm-spirited guy. He's always fun to be around. Yeah, he was there signing autographs, and he also did a panel, question and answer. And another Star Trek alumni, including... Lisa Wilcox who was from the TNG episode Vengeance Factor. And well this the the theme for MetrothamCon this year was uh was horror. So she she had also been on Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. It was interesting, a great time. Next year, when it shows up, we recommend checking out that convention in Chattanooga, Tennessee, MetrothamCon. Starlog magazine, issue number thirteen, May of nineteen seventy eight. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction. Log entries. Destination Saturn. NASA has three research spacecraft currently destined for rendezvous with the spectacularly ringed gas giant Saturn. First to reach Saturn will be Pioneer 11, followed by Voyagers 1 and 2. Shatner hosts SF Awards. Last January 14th, over 1,000 science fiction aficionados gathered for the 5th Annual Science Fiction Fantasy and Horror Awards Program, hosted by William Shatner. The awards presentation assumed the stature of an event once it was discovered that the show was to be televised live locally in California and taped for network syndication across the country. So we can see early on Shatner was involved in a lot of personal appearances before the motion picture became a big thing. I mean, I think he was just doing whatever job he could get. But he was but doing is, anything. He was yeah. doing commercials, everything, sure. But it's great that he was still staying out there, and everybody knew who he was, of course. Especially in the sci-fi community. Energy for Earth. NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center recently awarded a $695,000 contract to Rockwell International's Space Division in Downey, California, for a satellite power system study that will provide NASA additional data relative to the technical, social, and economic value of the concept. 
The satellite power system concept offers the potential of using a nearly inexhaustible resource, the sun, to obtain energy in large quantities for Earth usage. Well, that still has not come to fruition. Well, I think it's not really as practical as they thought it would be. This is Mark Nacaredo, creator of The Romulan War, a Star Trek fan production. The Romulan War is set in the Prime Trek universe in the 22nd century during the era of Captain Archer and the NX-01 Enterprise. Our film covers the war between Earth and the Romulan Empire, the key historical event which leads to the creation of the United Federation of Planets. For complete info on our film and all the other story content, visit our website at www.theromulanwar.com. Jolan True. We have an advertisement for the USS Enterprise Bridge Blueprints. We have that in our collection. What do you think about the blueprints, especially during that era of 1978? I mean, I, I love looking at them. I mean, I'm gl- so glad that they that they published that so that so that everybody could see it. It's just fun to look at. Hi, everybody. My name's Nathan Allen, and I am going over Interplanetary Excursions Inc. article by. Jonathan Eberhardt. This will be kind of a comparison of the vistas that are described in science fiction and the vistas that we now are seeing in real life. What is described in science fiction is, well, extremely fantastical, but we're finding out that reality is more fantastical than the fiction ever dreamed to be. The article says that it shoots down fantasies our space exploration does. The more pictures we get, it destroys the fantasy because at the time this article was written, the cameras were not that great. The telescopes had not been advanced to where they are now. And they are extremely advanced. We are getting high definition. Moons are plentiful. What we are seeing from the moon, Mars, and the planets that we have been surveying lately using uh, the Hubble telescope and all the other hardware that we have put up there now is just mind-blowing. It, in really, in my estimation, it blows away all the science fiction as to the vistas scene and the creativity of it all because you have every color. Look at Jupiter. Look at Mars. Mars, yes, mostly red, but not all the time. Uh, if you look at the, the Surveyor missions and the Rover missions, it is just amazing. And the features of the terrain are astounding. I'm not going to go into the uh, supposed ruins being found on these planets in our solar system that are not Earth, but you can see something like that there. Mars, like I said, is mostly red, but they have been finding all kinds of every terrain feature. Hills, mountains, valleys. On the pole, ice. Glaciers. Well, maybe one glacier. (laughs) And it is amazing. Jupiter is a gas giant. It has all the colors, too. And they change in cycles 
different timings, different colors. It just makes anything in science fiction look like a kid's story because science fiction, yes, it's descriptive and it tickles our imagination, but this is r real and it's there. We can look at it with a telescope and the pictures that have been taken by orbiters are amazing. They're getting better and better resolution every day. That at Hubble, Hubble has taken some extremely detailed pictures of Jupiter. Moving on to Saturn, we still don't have really close-up pictures of Saturn yet, but as our technology gets better, we get better and better distance shots. And as we all know, the rings are not solid. They just appear to be rings because we're so far out and they're so clustered together, it's debris. And, well, everything is so colorful on Saturn, around Saturn. The technology is getting there. Te uh, the views of Saturn have not blown anybody away yet. Well, some of us they have. We're getting more and more, but... As of now, we're looking at Saturn from quite a distance, and it's beautiful, but it hasn't reached that threshold where, like, we're looking at it like we're looking at Mars. Here's my hope to get a closer view of Saturn very quickly, because there is much to see. Okay, so as far as the article goes, it says our uh, fantasies have been spoiled. Oh, I disagree. Our fantasies have been upgraded. We are now looking farther for real things. And those real things are happening right now. With the space programs from now China, India, and, and the United States, and Europe's space agency, we are going to be able to see our solar system so well. Everyone's putting hardware up there so we can explore is the deepest core of us is exploring and off we go <laughs> now we have an advertisement here for future magazine it's a starlog publication that came out starting in 1978 that later would be called future life magazine we know at this point starlog was being published bi-monthly and there was so much more information coming out in the world of science fiction that the editors decided to create a companion magazine called Future. And so we're not going to do a complete overview of this short series. It didn't last too long, but in issue number one, dated April 1978, it asks, what does the future hold for science fiction? Notice what Gene Roddenberry had to say. I think that science fiction has become a legitimate branch of literature. The future will find it more popular than ever. It will no longer be relegated to the now and then space opera category. And science fiction isn't just happening in film, it's happening in books and hopefully it will happen in television. People are beginning to accept science fiction. It's no longer considered a lesser form of literature. In its own way, it stands as a finer form. Okay, that was very prophetic, definitely. So we're looking at this now, decades later. How can we say that this is prophetic? Science fiction has become 
a lot more popular on television. If you want to watch it all, I mean, it would take up all your time. And and also, as its own genre, it it has come forth to be um, to be substantial in its own right. And it's interesting. We we had the opportunity to engage with John and B. Joe Trimble recently, and B. Joe made an interesting point that when she was very much into science fiction in the 50s and 60s, that if she went to her local library, there was not a section for science fiction books. And this was in Oklahoma, that science fiction was not considered worthy of being in a library. That is interesting. I mean, I, they, they probably had some sci- maybe some science fiction mixed in with the regular fiction. Probably H.G. Wells, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. There had to be elements of it. But now there's not only entire sections of science fiction, but it's even branched off into graphic novel section. I mean, what Gene Roddenberry said is absolutely true, that it is a legitimate branch of literature. It is. It's well known. And also, it it's it's for adults. I mean, it, because it was seen as more of a children's thing. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's taken more seriously now. A lot of adults are, are into it now and take it seriously. Also, when Frederick Pohl was asked that question, and we know that he was the editor of Bantam Books, who in the 70s was spearheading the Star Trek line. Notice what he had to say about the future of science fiction. I think that science fiction is the future. It's a literature of change. It talks about all the possible futures that may exist in one story or another. It will continue to do that indefinitely. As we discover new scientific concepts, SF writers will discover new ways in which they affect human beings. What do you think about his comments? That's excellent, too, um, and it does show how, how far we've come since then. Science fiction is well-known now and more popular. It's become science fact. Yes, a lot of the things envisioned before ha- have come to fruition. Hi, I'm Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Casto. And we are from 70s Trek. So before we dive in and talk <laughs> about this stuff, I, I had to go do this. I wanted to see what was going on in the movies in 1978. So I just thought we'd run through a quick top 10 list of the big movies at that time. There you go. Good idea. What do you think number 10 was? Oh, 70, 77 or 78? 78. 78. Oh, uh, Superman, the movie isn't out yet. Not out yet. So it has to be, Star Wars still has to be running. Um, nope. No? No. I'll tell you what it was. Yeah, California Sweet. California I think Sweet. that's a Blake Edwards movie. Okay, yes. yes so sense. that one didn't really stand the test of time too well. Number nine. Number nine is awesome. It is Convoy. Convoy. Oh, yes. Remember everybody was using CB radios. Yeah, they were. And so to, to jump on top of that craze, somebody had to come up with the movie Convoy. Right. Also, I at the drive-in with my dad. There you go. Yeah. Um, just going to go out. Oh, nice. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Convoy also has not really stood the test of time well. Um, not necessarily. No. Not too well. Uh-uh. But number eight has. Number eight is Halloween. Oh, classic. 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 Number seven, Hooper with Burt Reynolds. Hooper, yes. 
Yep. Yeah, Number. Go ahead. So, so Hooper is that before or after Smoking and the Bandit? I can't remember. Oh. I, think I don't Smoking know the Bandit either. Was first or after that? But we will dive in on another episode of Seventies Trek that we're not <laughs> recording anymore. Talk about that. Uh, number six was Heaven Can Wait. Oh yeah, good one. Yeah. Number five was Jaws Two. Jaws Two. Okay, makes sense. Jaws number One f- was what seventy five or seventy six? Yeah, 76? something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Number need a bigger f- boat. Oh God, what a classic line! <laughs> what a classic line. We need a bigger boat. Yeah. Number four, Clint Eastwood in every which way but loose. Right turn, Clyde. And, and you were right, actually. Number three, Superman. Okay. Now, number two is uh, uh, near and dear to our hearts, National Lampoon's Animal House. Animal House. Classic. And then number one is Grease. Oh, I forgot all about Grease. Right? Yeah. Also on this list, number 19, The Lord of the Rings. Not the Peter Jackson yeah, version, the obviously. Animated. Yeah, the animated. Um, the Wiz. Never saw it. Don't think I no, probably you will. Haven't? No, I it haven't. was good. It was good. Ice Castles. Uh, the Boys from Brazil. Have you ever seen that movie? Oh, yes. My gosh. That's, that's a really good movie. movie. Um, the Betsy. The Betsy. Yeah, it's, I think it's a thriller, if I remember correctly. Corvette Summer with Mark Cor- Hamill. Mark Hamill, yep. The Buddy Holly Story. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Remember all those bands, oh, yes. the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton? and Yes. Don't tell anybody, but I've got it recorded on my DirecTV DVD. <sighs> Love it. I think I saw it once when it came out, and then I haven't seen it again. American Hot, American Hot Wax. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so those are some of the movies from back in 1978. Really, we should get on with the mission at hand and talk about Starlog. We should. Do you have any uh, takes here initially for uh, issue well, 13? So if you followed us on 70s Trek and we gave a lot of the the dirty underbellies of how we got from the original series, the animated series through all of the, you know, turns and pitfalls to get to the start of the motion picture. And, you know, Susan, I think, and we know she was, you know, had her fingers and everything at the time. She was being very optimistic, but cautiously so, I think, in this article. Yeah, I, I thought this article started off, um, you know, with her saying just eight days um Short of the start date for phase two in November 77, the production was postponed. Yes. Until March. So phase two production postponed until March. But then in the next paragraph, she says Paramount committed several million dollars to a Star Trek motion picture. Right. So obviously the official word that phase two is dead. We talked about this in 70s Trek hasn't happened. Right. Yeah, everybody's and, still in limbo. We, as fans, we didn't know anything. No. Uh. Uh-uh. Uh. And this doesn't really give away too much. 
this article. No, she's she's guarded. Yeah. Is that what you would say? I, yeah, I think guard is a good word. Uh, in previous Starlog uh, articles that she did, there was a lot more of a uh, jubilant attitude. Yes. Would you say? Yeah. No, very, very upbeat and positive. Yeah. That's why I say this is po- positive or optimistic, but she's cautiously optimistic. I thought it was interesting that she said, you know, now the added time allows the production staff to begin working with special effects experts, modifying the sets, um, accommodating them for uh, a larger filming experience that, that, you know, she suggested that it could be shot in 70 millimeter, not just 35 millimeter, right? which is pretty significant. Um, they're working with magic cam. Magic cam was the phase two effects house. Yes. So as word comes down that there's a a motion picture that's going to be in the works, they're still working with magic cam. Right. I thought that was interesting. I'd forgotten about that. That And then I I thought it was neat that she mentioned this, the bridge is being fitted with touch plates that will actually make lights come on much like, you know, when you use a touch plate on an, on an elevator, she mentioned, yes. and um, the actors will be given an instruction book. So they know which touch plate to push for which light or activity on the bridge to. Right. Which would make sense. They'd have to build that into the script and here you yeah. need to do this, that, or whatever, just like, but um, just like act, an action sequence. Yeah. Right. So if you want to see this effect show up on this screen, you've got to touch this plate. Right. And you're going to do that now. And then she goes on to say the the fate of the television uh, series is still uncertain, although things look good for the series after the release of the movie, right. which would be hopefully Christmas 1978. Huh. Hmm. Well, that huh. was off by, <laughs> by a year. Yeah, just a year, which is in Hollywood. That's probably not too bad. Yeah. Well, for maybe. Star Trek, that's really good. Considering we've waited now, you know, nine <laughs> years. What the hell? Yeah. yeah. And then the last thing I thought that was kind of worth noting, uh, she quotes uh, a few passages from a letter written by Gene Roddenberry to the fans where he says uh, the studio became concerned that a made-for-television Star Trek was bound to suffer in any comparison with the big-budget Star Wars and close encounters of the third kind. And so Paramount decided to commit the studio's resources to making Star Trek a widescreen. He says a, yeah. a widescreen motion picture to be shown in theaters. Yeah. A widescreen? Well, I I mean, it I is guess. 70, right? So right. They, they could be doing 35 millimeter. They could well, be- and perhaps he was drawing the, the, the difference between the television, you know, square yeah. shape and a widescreen. I don't know. But I, I just like sort of tickled me a little bit yeah a widescreen motion picture right. <laughs> right you you have any thoughts on on that article anymore well sure there um to stay with the gene roddenberry letter um i really like how he's he's think, thanking the fans you know he he's wants to keep them in the loop as much as he's allowed to say because you could you could read in between the lines and since we know what happened um you know, there's a lot more that 
that he can't say, and he's kind of trying to skirt around it. Um, So I like the fact that he he basically is shutting the door on TV and this being a TV venture where, um, you know, that, you know, basically changing everybody's mindset of, okay, don't look here, look there. This is going to be bigger. This is going to be better. You know, and again, trying to be positive for the fans. Um, and then, you know, rumors are amok, right? At this point, because you've got all of these failed attempts to bring Star Trek back. And he is saying, look, because they don't, the studio doesn't want to do TV. They want to do a motion picture because we got to compete with the new bar that's been set by Star Wars, by Close Encounters specifically. And we have to compete at that level. And, and that's, that's what he's telling everybody. And the rumors are all false. Yeah. I, I think that last section where she's quoting that letter is very honest. Yeah. The studio, if you read between the lines, the studio recognizes that these two movies, Star Wars and Close Encounters, were a big deal. They brought in a lot of money. And if we yes. want to compete, it's going to have to be big. And we don't want mud on our face. Right. And what franchise do they have? They have Star Trek to do that. Yep, exactly. So I did like at the very beginning of the letter where Susan is talking about uh, what Isaac Asimov wrote to them about hey it's kind of and i'm super paraphrasing here this is my take it's kind of ironic that your studio offices are on 5451 marathon street and it you know susan even plays up to that giving the definition of what a trek is and what marathon is at the very beginning of the article and yeah it's been a long haul it's been a marathon it has been a marathon Good stuff. Uh, hey guys, go Grok Spock. Hi folks, I'm Dan Lackey, and speaking with me today is Mike Schilling, co-host of the Speaking Nerdy podcast. Today we'll be discussing a one-page article reporting on a visit to a filming location in San Francisco's Tenderloin District during a six-week production shoot in the city for the 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. What are your memories of having seen the film? Well, for me, is I I was amazed. Uh, just some of the similarities and the difference from the 1956 version of it. And I was just surprised of the cast, uh, very popular during the seventies, uh, Leonard Nimoy, which, you know, I'm a big fan of, and I was just fascinated his ability, you know, his, his talent, you know, to, to act more than just, uh, than Spock and Star Trek. So I, I was just amazed just the, the casting, uh, some of the cinematography, which was very popular back in the seventies. Anyway, I, I can probably go on and on about it, but uh, for me, it was just a, a kind of a snapshot uh, of, of that time. What I thought was interesting was the relationship between the city and the filming. Uh, for me, it was just there was this uh, symbiotic relationship between, um, you know, between the you know, the, the cast and the crew, uh, it was very fascinating to me that you know, the citizens and the tourists almost couldn't tell the difference between the, you know, fiction and realism during that time. Yeah. Um, and that's what got me, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what got me there. I think it's cool that the article states that even though he wasn't working on that particular day, Leonard Nimoy signed some autographs for his fans. And I also find it interesting that even though, it's, I guess, it's, as you were saying, the police helped cordon off the street, apparently not all the police officers were informed of all the preparations, with one particular policeman mistaking a young actress who was portraying a streetwalker as an actual officer I saw that. I mean, that's what I get, the, you know, the relationship in the city, because... You know, there were some people who played extras who were citizens of San Francisco, you know, who knew what was going on. There were several times they would have tourists come by and, and in the, I guess, on the scene where, you know, the body, you know, was on the ground all bloody. The tourist goes by and they're just shocked. And, of course, you have all the extras just laughing because they they know they know what's going on. It, it's just, yeah. And, and Lennon Nemore, he's a class act. I mean, you know, came out, talked to his fans um I, I think he's always been a class act and he's just one of those guys who really you know he's he's not afraid to be spock he's not afraid being notable being notable to what he did before and in his fans the setting of the novel is the real town of mill valley california which has changed to the fictional californian town of sanford the 1956 film version however the 1978 film remake takes place in the real city of san francisco the change of setting was one of the very first decisions that director Phil Kaufman made for his 1978 version, and the opening credits specifically highlight the setting when his director's credit appears. Uh, what do you think the setting of San Francisco adds to the film? I think, you know, for me, going from a small, going from 1956 smaller town in San Francisco, you know, I asked myself, well, New York City would have been a better location, but I think, I think San Francisco is a nice middle. I think. Uh, you know, the population of that time is, you know, the usual population, but nothing like New York City, you know, very dense. And I, and I think it's, it was easier for um, the film crew to be able to um, work in that environment. Plus, it's a, you know, it's a very pleasant background and, you know, Golden Gate Bridge and, and some of the other landmarks. I think San Francisco fit. Um, and so I, I think the city was a perfect place to have it uh, versus having a very large city like New York city. I think it gives um, the remake a sense of scope, which the original film doesn't have. And also I've been thinking to myself, it probably like gave um, like an added sense of like realism or relatability in the, it's an actual city that would be like, well, what if that actually happens, uh, you know, to that city rather than some made up place? Yeah, yeah. I, I think for me too is the uh, I know is the cinematography. You know, it has a very nineteen seventies type of kind of feel. You know, it, it kind of goes back to the nineteen sixties. How in Europe uh, some of the film uh, cinematography was. So definitely there was a lot of influence in that. But you know, I mean, I look at this cast. You know, and I look at Donald Sutherland, of course, Jeff Goldblum. You, you look at people like. I mean, even uh, Robert Duvall was in it. Duvall was in it, and he didn't have any credit in the movie. He was the priest swinging, you know, in the beginning, swinging on a on the swing set, you know, and and all these little nuggets, these little actors, you know, these actors that later on became well. I mean, at the time, they they were very famous, and they were just behind the scenes, you know, almost like uh, like extras. And so that was amazing to me how many how much talent was in the film. 
you know, uh, what's interesting, a lot of people argue the 1956 film was actually a message of communism that was spreading through the United States, which I thought was fascinating, which, uh, you know, Jack Finney says, no, this is an, I, I wrote this as a non, um, you know, political film, but I think it's interesting for that time. And yeah, I think he said the same thing about the novel as well. Exactly. Which was interesting was from, it was based off of a, uh, of a magazine serial at first, you know, mm-hmm. collar magazine in the 1950s was really popular. But I, and just an interesting now, I know it's not the article, but the 1956 film was only shot in 23 days, which I found <laughs> pretty amazing. But anyway, that was just a, a side note. I also noticed um, at one point the report in the Starlog magazine describes how the film's assistant director yelled at the extras, people, you look like the Keystone Cops. Stop <laughs> waving your arms around when you run. Shout, don't wave. Um, reading this gave me flashbacks to the 1986 film Star Trek IV The Voyage Home when Kirk tells his crewmates who are also in the midst of San Francisco to break up because they look like a cadet review. And of course that film was directed, co-written and starred Leonard Nimoy who appears in this film. I think, yeah, I think it's fascinating. I mean, I like it, the throwback, you know, I'm, you know, it's funny because of the assistant directing yelling at the crowd, you know, I guess they, you know, you think about it, you know, screaming and panicking, you know, you're waving the hands like one of those little inflatable noodles outside of a, out of, you know, promotional, (laughs) you know, advertisement. And yeah, I can totally understand that. You know, the whole idea is it it was like a cross between aliens and zombies, you know, you had that, it had that feel. And so, you know you don't of course in this you know he didn't want to make it he didn't want to make it campy and i think it would have made it a a little more you know it would have been campy if if they raised their hands and they were running i think that was a good choice i I recently spoke with uh bobby clark who played the corn in the original series of star trek in an episode called arena and it was uh stunned that he's in the 1956 version and also too the cinematography is totally different you know back then it was more of a you know noir kind of you know really working with black and white and and you know the 70s transition period you know like hollywood like i was saying before they try to incorporate the style you know where you know they didn't have that sharp clean crisp you know it was more saturated and and it just had a different feel and so it is kind of hard to look at a black and white version you know, with that actor, you know, Kevin McCarty and, and, and some of the other actors there and be able, of course, too, I mean, they've aged quite a bit too. So, uh, you know, comparing the two. And so, yeah, it'll be, it'll be a little difficult to you know, tell, to t- try to spot them out, you know, because of, uh, because of the time period between the two films. Uh, one thing was brilliant. You, you, they kept you guessing he was actually, um let's call let's say a pod person you know let's call it that you know for the longest time i you know you different actors you know like uh for a while jeff goldblum who played jack bellick you know there was a time okay is he actually one of these aliens or not it's the same thing with donald sutherland you know matthew bonnell getting close to the end you know they kept you guessing and, you know, sometimes you'll watch it and there's this little sparkle of their eye or just a little bit thing that's off. And so it, they brought the audience in because just like, just like the main characters who were trying to figure out, okay, why is my husband off? Why is my friend off? The sentence not right. Well, they, they brought us in as an audience doing the same thing with some of the main characters, which I thought was clever. It, it, it's very interesting how they directed this film, how they moved it. 
definitely, uh, you know, the studios fought a lot with, uh, with Kaufman because he wanted to take a, you know, especially in, in the seventies they're trying to get away from this feel good ending. And they really wanted to focus on this kind of a, I would call it this, you know, uh, this more of a serious ending, like a ending of endings where, you know, they wanted basically, you know, to be saved the day, you know, like, uh, kind of like they did war of the worlds where they found out the bacteria was killing the aliens and humanity survived, but the, this was not it. And it took a serious note at the end. Uh, I noticed the article says that the 1978 version of the film was to have a spring release, whereas it was eventually released in December of that year. Yeah. That's um, interesting. Yeah. It's not something I would, see as a as a holiday film <laughs> you uh, know yeah. not something i would see as a holiday film so i i find that interesting but you know and i and it's funny i looked at rotten tomatoes and it it was not really critically acclaimed but if you look at as far as as viewers it had it ranked up there about 85 percent, 85 so that's that's not bad kind of almost an occult classic it became more realism as far as compared to the sci-fi of the 1950s you know i think this is one of the films where i you know may have not kicked off but you know made horror films a little more uh you know not the happy endings are not there in the horror films you know it's almost like the shock at the very end of course you get that the build up to the very end uh, donald sutherland's character so yeah Speaking of endings, the concluding words of the article note the movie was being touted not as a remake of a classic, but an updating of a classic theme. Uh, to this end, Wikipedia notes Kaufman is remarking, I thought, well, this doesn't have to be a remake as such. It can be a new envisioning that was a variation of a theme. Yeah, I, I think, and that, that was a good choice. I mean, you know, it's we, we've seen that in a lot of a lot of things here in, in the present, you know, taking a, taking a film, doing a remake, you know, uh, changing up some of the plots uh you know we've seen that a lot of um you know taking you know i refer to a lot of, you know canon and comics and some of the other sci-fi stuff it's basically off of books you know there's that liberty to change things um and so i i think and usually that has a backlash for a lot of fans but i think this that i think they did very well i think they created their own you know, they took a basic concept and they made it their own. And I think they do a job. I think they did a good job. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I thought the article was uh, pretty good as well. I uh, thought it was cool that they included a picture of uh, Phil Kaufman because before that, I, went, I had wondered what he, he looked like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I really, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's really neat seeing Nimoy and the conversations and, uh, you know, Donald Sutherland and, uh, of course, you know, next to him, a couple, uh, if you look on the, uh, look on the picture, a couple of people next to him is, you know, uh, McCarthy. And uh, I don't know, it's really cool uh, seeing kind of this, uh, at that time, the 70s, you know, kind of this passing of the torch. Captain's Log, Stardate 5122-6, on a mission to Gamma 6. Spock phones scotty and i beamed down not knowing what to expect we approached the idol its jaws were moving suddenly five lilliputians appeared each attached to the other 
the aliens placed themselves in front of the idol. Strange animals tried to grab us. Bones was trapped in a man-eating plant. Suddenly the floor gave way. I was in the cave. The Lilliputians were friendly. Mission to Gamma 6 was a success. Starlog Magazine, issue number 14, June of 1978. <laughs> Latest news from the worlds of science fiction. Log entries. NASA to salvage Skylab? Occasionally, on a clear spring night, a glowing object can be seen moving through the vastness of space. It is not a meteor, for it can be spotted on a regular route quite often. It does possess the familiar green and red lights of a passing aircraft. It is almost too bright to be a satellite, yet it floats gracefully above Earth, an echo of the past, the only one of its kind, the first space station ever to be put in orbit by the United States, Skylab. Now, this news feature talks about Skylab orbiting the Earth as well as the Space Shuttle Project. And we know that there's a strong connection with the, the Space Shuttle Project with Star Trek. They named their, their first shuttle Enterprise, which was cool. And Nichelle Nichols, who recruited a lot of people to join NASA. And, I mean, the Space Shuttle Program, we can't stress it enough that going forward... Nichelle Nichols made such an incredible impact, and especially some of the people that were most known for going on the space shuttle and going into space were direct results of Nichelle Nichols' contributions. Uh, yes, uh, Sally Ride and, and Ronald McNair both joined this, the space program due to Nichelle Nichols' efforts of recruiting back in the 70s. And we're going to talk about it a little bit later on, but think about it. Without Star Trek real-world Star Trek, Nichelle Nichols wouldn't be involved in this project. Without Nichelle Nichols being involved in this project, our real-world space program would look and feel very different. Yeah, she changed a lot because she, she recruited a lot of people who, who wouldn't have um, have joined NASA without her efforts. Who wouldn't have even thought that that was within their wheelhouse of possibilities. I mean, that's Star Trek coming to life. That's the world that we love living in. In, in when, when we think of these positive aspects. New freedom for high-flying astronauts. How does one maneuver in the gravity-free environment of outer space? With great difficulty. Standard procedure calls for teething the astronauts to his vehicle by means of bulky and unwielding umbilical cords. The process of just exiting a craft and untangling the cords took a dangerous amount of physical exertion by the EVA astronaut on more than one space mission. Now, in the era of the space shuttle, crew members will be leaving their craft with regularity to perform a variety of tasks. NASA has developed the Manned Maneuvering Unit. The unit is a modular propulsive backpack device that was stowed in the car shuttle's cargo bay and can be donned and serviced by a single crew member for EVA. And it's funny to think that every time we see something from the 60s with an astronaut, we always see that umbilical cord. But in the 70s and going to the 80s, this new development has helped them. So they're not all wrapped up in the cord. Yeah, that is neat. They can just, they float freely in space. High Frontier, Human Colonies in Space. Bantam Books has inaugurated their new 
science fact line with the paperback publication of Dr. Gerard O'Neill's controversial book, The High Frontier, A Proposal for Human Space Habitation. O'Neill's work, which won the Phi Beta Kappa Award for Science in 1977 as a hardcover published by Morrow, traces the development of the first man-inhabited space colony, Island One, from its present-day planning status to its full completion and full-time production state shortly after the era of the space shuttle. And it's interesting to note that the entire idea for space colonization with regard to this book and the proposal was based on a routine assignment in one of Dr. O'Neill's classes. When he asked a room full of freshman physics students back in 1969 to find out whether the Earth was best suited for environment for an industrialized society, he was shaken up that all of the pupils in his class reached the same conclusion that space, not Earth, was most likely setting for man's continuing search for progress. So they, of course, they thought that space, the final frontier, that's where we need to go next. And I wonder if they took that poll at the same class today, that the students would feel that we should be going forward into space. Yeah, I think they would. And as Star Trek fans, we're always saying, of course, go forward. Let's boldly go. Now, we know that by 1978, Star Trek was almost a decade off the screens as far as real time. But it was reaching massive popularity in rewatches, in syndication. Yes, and that's how we both got into Star Trek, watching it in syndication. It's funny that it was so popular that Saturday Night Live was able to spoof not only Star Trek, but the cancellation of Star Trek. And this is an era when the average person did not have a VCR. So Starlog did something very unique, knowing that its readers couldn't, everyone couldn't watch it live. They actually transcribed the entire script of that episode. Notice how it's brought up here in Starlog. It says, NBC Saturday Night Live produced the most respectful, most accurate, and most hilarious satire ever derived from the classic Star Trek series. Gene Roddenberry wrote to guest star Elliot Gould, It was delicious. That is the proper word for it. Imaginatively conceived and aptly carried out with the kind of loose good humor that is entertaining parody that it demands. Hope to soon get started on a Star Trek theatrical film and hope to promote a copy of your parody from NBC so it can be shown to all the groups to remind us to hang loose and to have some fun with what we're doing. The satire itself had become a classic, and Starlog is pleased to tickle your funny bone with the text of this script. So here it is, The Last Voyage of the Starship Enterprise, a television script by Michael O'Donohue. Captain Kirk to the bridge. Captain Kirk to the bridge. Captain Kirk. Yes, Mr. Spock. Captain, sensors are picking up an unidentified vessel headed straight toward us. Range, Mr. Sulu? 0.04 light years, sir, and closing fast. Lieutenant O'Hurl, open a hailing frequency. I've been trying to raise them, but there's no response, sir. This is Captain James T. Kirk. Of the Starship Enterprise. Identify yourself. Put them on the view screen. 
Full magnification. Aye, aye, sir. I repeat, identify yourself. What kind of ship is that, Spock? Fascinating, Captain. It would appear to be an early gas combustion vehicle, at least two or three hundred years old. Well, run it through the computer. Find out what those little numbers mean. I want answers. Process visual feed, analyze, and reply. I have a hunch, Mr. Spock, that we are about to face a menace more terrifying than the flying parasites of Ingraham B. More insidious. More insidious than the sand bats of Manark 4. More bloodthirsty than the vampire clouds of Argus 10. I have a hunch, Mr. Spock, that we are about to face something deadlier than the Romulans, the Klingons, and the Gorns all rolled into one. Here's the readout, Captain. The computer has identified the alien vessel as a 1968 Chrysler Imperial with a tinted windshield and retractable headlights. <laughs> and the little blue and orange numbers. That's called a California license plate, and it's registered, or was in 1968, to a corporation known as NBC. Wait a minute. There's something more. The computer isn't sure, but it thinks this NBC used to manufacture cookies. Could that, could that be some sort of illusion, Mr. Spock? It's no illusion, Captain. Scanner readings indicate two life forms inside this craft. Mr. Sulu, increase speed to warp factor eight. But, sir, that's only for most extreme emergencies. The ship can't take it. You heard my order, Mr. Sulu. Aye, aye, sir. Captain's log, stardate 3615.6. On a routine delivery of medical supplies to Earth Colony 9, we are being chased through space by an automobile three centuries old, owned by a company that manufactured cookies. It would all seem silly if it weren't for this feeling of dread that haunts me. The sense of impending doom. They're right behind us, Captain. Let's lose them, Mr. Sulu. Prepare for evasive action. Helm hard to port. Hard to starboard. Hard to port. Frankly, Captain, I'm exhausted. Me too. Stabilize, Mr. Sulu. Look, Captain, it's no use. We can't shake them. And we'll give them a fight they won't forget. All hands, man your battle stations. This is not a drill. Red alert. But man Captain, your battle stations. Red alert. Vazor's locked on target, sir. Captain, you can't. Stand by to fire. Vazor's standing by, sir. Captain, we don't know who the aliens are or what they want. To kill them without anything would be illogical. Fact, Mr. Spock. We do not know their intention. Fact. I'm responsible for the lives of 430 crewmen. And fact. I can't take any chances. Fire main phasers. I said fire main phasers. I'm trying, sir. Nothing is happening. Lock and arm photon torpedoes, Mr. Sulu. They're not working either, Captain. Deflector's up. Captain, the help, helm does not respond. The controls are dead. We're slowing down, Captain. We're stopping. Bridge to engine room. Acknowledge. Scotty here, Captain. <laughs> what in blazes is going on, Scotty? I don't know, Captain. We're losing power, and I don't know why. Well, do something, man. Go to manual overdrive. Cut to auxiliary systems. Saints preserve us, Captain, but even the emergency systems are out. Well, fix it, Scotty. I don't care how, but fix it. The lives of 430 crewmen stand in the balance. Kirk out. Life support systems are still operative, Captain. But for how long, Mr. Spock? For how long? 
<laughs> Lieutenant Uhura, inform Starfleet of our situation. All communications are dead, Captain. Well, keep trying. Jim, I... I Jim, I... Spit it out, man. Come on, Bones. Jim, the aliens, Jim, they're, they've boarded the ship. They're, they're coming this way. But, but, but how, Bones? How? Did they beam on board? Did they suddenly materialize? What... What did they, how did they get here? They just stepped out from behind the curtains. Describe them, Doctor. Well, there are two of them, humanoid in appearance. They're bipeds, and uh, they have sort of drab clothing, except that around the neck of the leader is a brightly colored piece of cloth. Is there anything else odd about their clothing? I'm a doctor, not a tailor, damn it. <laughs> I don't know. But yes, there was something strange. They, they spoke English. They spoke English, Jim. They'll be here in seconds. I can hear them coming up the turbo lift. We've got to do something. All right. And we'll be ready for them. I'm Captain James C. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise, representing the United Federation of Planets. Hi, I'm Herb Goodman, head of programming for the network. Stand back. I will not hesitate to shoot. Uh, can I have your attention, please? Please, I need some attention. Curtis, will you uh, turn the sound effects down? I'd like everybody's attention, please. I have a, an announcement to make. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, due to the low Nielsen ratings, we at NBC have decided to, unfortunately, cancel Star Trek. Fire my command. On your way out, you can uh, pass the cashier's desk and pick up your check. Set faces to stun. Fire. Nothing's happening, Jim. I can't understand it. Oh, and look, boys, you do me a favor and return these things to the property department, okay? Try kill. They're still not working, Jim. They're still not working. Most peculiar, Captain. I can only assume that they possess some sort of weapons deactivator, in which case I shall merely render him unconscious with my famous Vulcan nerve pinch. Of course, if it was up to me, you could keep them, uh, give them away as souvenirs to the kids, whatever, but we're planning to uh, market a complete line for merchandising. And, uh, we, uh, oh, that's, uh, we need to send them to Taiwan to be copied. It's nice material, isn't it? You can't buy it. And all... Yes, Nimoy, I'm sorry. We'll have to take your ears back, too. For God's sake, man. We're on a five-year mission to explore space. We've only been out here for three years. Sorry, it's the Nielsen's. If it was up to me, my kids like it. Wait, what? What are those Nielsen's the alien keeps talking about, Mr. Spock? If I remember my history correctly, Captain, Nielsen's were a primitive system of estimating television viewers once used in the mid-20th century. Man, we're meant to fly, he'd have better ratings. Is that what you're saying, Mr. Goodbody? I've had enough of this. George, Michelle, let's go. I'm going to tie one on. I'm with you, Kelly. I think I'll just go home. Believe that kind of talk, Dr. McCoy. Bill, forget it. It's lost. It's all over. Leonard, you coming? Lay off, Joker. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Mr. Spock, we have yet to try the Vulcan mind meld, where you actually enter the alien's mind meld with his intelligence, and read his thoughts. I entered Mr. Goodman's mind while you were talking to Dr. McCoy, Captain, and it was all all dark and empty in there, and there were little mice in the corners. <laughs> I keep bumping my head on the ceiling. I don't... Stop! Know. I'm all right, Captain. All right. What do you think, Curtis? You think we can sell any of this junk to Lost in Space? Well, man, it all comes apart. Just... Hey, get away from there. Hey, right on, Buck Rogers. Is that an honor, baby? <laughs> Look. No. Okay, boys, let's go. Then I'm breaking on up. Go! I can't let it end like this. No, I'm the commander of the ship. 
waters around here. It is my ship. I give the commands. I am responsible for the lives of 430 crewmen. And I will not let them down. There must be some way out. You're becoming quite emotional, Captain. Needless to say, my trained Vulcan mind finds such open displays of emotion distasteful. Emotion, you see, interferes with logic. It is only by dealing with the problems in a logical, scientific fashion that we can arrive at valid solutions. Now, with regard to the alien takeover of the Enterprise, I would suggest that we seek some new alternative based on some exact computer analysis, of course, and taking into consideration elements of... I don't believe this! God! Everybody needs to know wants the show and want to see the show! What? I have a contract. I have a contract. I want my... Where's my ears? I want my ears! Leave it alone! Leave it alone! Leave it where it is! So that's what it is. Fuck! You're half human, remember? So that's how it is, huh? Just me, huh? Well, I've been in tougher spots before. No way! No way am I going to give up. I'd rather go down with the ship. Oh, Shatner, look, you had a call from a margarine company. They said they'd call you. <laughs> Captain's log. Final entry. We have tried to explore strange new worlds. To seek out new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before. And except for one television network, we have found intelligence everywhere in the galaxy. <laughs> Live long and prosper. Promise. <laughs> Captain James P. Kirk. SC 937-0176. CEC. Hi there, I'm Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Castillo. You know... Uh, last time around, Kelly, we talked about Starlog issue 13. Right. And uh, before we started recording, you had some interesting takes that I don't want you to give yet, but you had some really interesting takes between the two, and I, I want you to do that. But first, I thought it was really important since we're talking about 1978 to talk about some of the groovy tunes that were going on. That's awesome. Yes. So I looked at the <laughs> Billboard Hot 100 singles of 1978. Why don't we go through the top 10 real quick? Yeah, let's do that. That'll be fun. Do you like the Commodores? Because they sure. were sitting big at number 10 with Three Times a Lady. One of my personal favorites, and it's really because I'm kind of a weirdo, is A Taste of Honey doing Boogie Oogie Oogie. <laughs> Boogie Oogie Oogie. All right. Yeah. What's next? <laughs> Boogie, oogie, oogie. Yeah. yeah um, unfortunately, I could sing with you. You knew it. Number eight is Andy Gibb singing Love is Thicker Than Water. Love is Thicker Than Water. Yes. Number seven. Uh, this is a classic, I think. Do you remember Player and Baby Come Back? Baby Come Back. Yeah. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. a great song. That is. Number six, The Bee Gees, How Deep Is Your Love? How Deep Is Your Love? It's not that deep. Uh, number five, Exile. I want to kiss you all over. I want to kiss you all over. Yeah. I have sung that a few times to my embarrassment. Number four, the Bee Gees, Staying Alive. Wow. This Bee is Gees a really interesting one. top 10, isn't it? For 1978, yeah, the, um, the disco era is alive and well. Number three, Debbie Boone's You Light Up My Life. 
Oh, I dropped that on my, of my life too, Bob. Thank you so much. I dropped that on my wife once and she told me to get out. <laughs> Number two, the Bee Gees again with night fever. Wow. Well, and then Saturday night fever was hot. Right. Right. Exactly. And then number one, a brother of the Bee Gees, Andy Gibb, with Shadow Dancing. That was the top 10 in 1978. Um, there's some really cool songs in here throughout, though. The Stones, Miss You, Eric Clapton's Lay Down, Sally, um, John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, You're the One That I Want. Yeah. From Greece. Greece. Yes. Uh, Billy Joel's Just the Way You Are, Wings with a Little Luck. Um and Bonnie Tyler, it's a heartache. Oh, okay. And then, of course, we have to talk Good. about Queen. We will rock you. We are the champions. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we are. Yes. Thank you so much. So you had something really interesting to say before we started recording. Would you just get that out there? Well, you know, my short-term memory might not serve me well here. <laughs> um, but... Uh, well, I'll just say last, the last episode we did for issue 13, she, she was optimistic, right? Um, she is in all the fingers and everything here in Star Trek related. Something's changed from when she wrote the article for issue 13 to 14. And she's, and I'll use the word snarky. Um, so, and it comes across in a couple little things in this article, not little necessarily. So, um, my, I'll begin, I guess, with a little box she put, which was a, a um, log, uh, you know, start eight log, start eight, nine, 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 nine point nine. Like it's the end of time. <laughs> And she, you know, this little um, log, if you will, talking about how it's been a centuries awaited Star Trek holographic picture will begin production. And the, uh, I won't go through it, but the great time six grandson of Gene Roddenberry, Gene Roddenberry the eighth says we've had some problems <laughs> okay yeah if it's that far in the future and the descendants of nearly all of the original cast I'm like okay so nearly so we talked on 70s trek that there was a holdout and that was nimoy right and so is she kind of poking at nimoy here you gotta wonder right you gotta wonder so um, so yeah, I don't know that, that kind of laid the groundwork for the rest of the, the article. And I think that she kept it short and sweet for her comments and went right into, you know, the, um, here's what's happening. Basically here's the facts, ma'am type of. Yeah. Of and, and if you've read these articles by Susan Sack at the Star Trek reports, um, she's trying to have fun with them at times and they sometimes maybe come off a little silly or a little like she's playing up to the audience a little bit. Right. This definitely feels like she's playing up to the audience. This definitely feels like she's 
trying to be trying too hard to be funny. Yeah, she it, and it turns from funny to sarcastic. Yeah. So, which, you know, it's not funny anymore. She's definitely, you know, showing her hand a little bit, I think, in this article. And the the tone is, um, it's hard to pin down, right? The tone isn't, is. isn't enthusiastic like other articles have been. The tone on this article is a little more, um, what would you word? What word would you use? Well, she's trying to force being positive. Ah, huh. okay. That's good. Yeah. She, she's definitely not enthusiastic. In fact, she doesn't have a lot to write about. Right. Is my take. Yes. And so she divides this article into sections, the script, special effects, publicity, film tests, sets, and then a mailbag section, which is an entire column, um, third column in the article. Right. So it seems to me like she was looking for pieces to write about. Yeah. And was able to write little pieces of each of these sections. Right. Well, even, we know even from the set section, she restates basically what she talked about in issue 13 with the wiring um, of the bridge. I know. I wrote that down on my notes. We're still working on the bridge wiring. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I wrote that down too. That's yes. funny. Um, she talks about the script. Gene Roddenberry is just completing final work on the new script, which will take full advantage of the broader opportunities afforded by the widescreen. We know that that script was, uh, God, uh, uh, was horrific. Had all kinds of problems. Okay. It it wasn't a great script when it was a TV movie script, and now trying to adapt it and turn it into something for the big screen became even harder. It it had been rewritten so many times right. uh, over the years, um, from a story by Alan Dean Foster to a couple of guys who got fired to Harold Livingston coming in to Gene Roddenberry rewriting Harold Livingston to Harold Livingston rewriting Gene Roddenberry. Remember they had that back and forth feud going. The, oh, the, yeah. the two men ended up not talking to each other because they rewrote each other without right. talking about it to the point where they weren't talking with each other for months. Yeah. Um, and so what ended up suffering was the script. And we've talked about some of that uh, when uh, during 70s Trek, but there are really awkward moments yeah. When the script doesn't really make sense. When um, the, the one that stands out foremost in my mind is when Ilea walks on the bridge for the first time and Decker is just pleased as punch. He's got that big smile on his face, right? Yeah. His ex-girlfriend's on the bridge and he's still got it going for her. Yes. But he says something, you know, to Ilea, um, Ilea says to Decker, Commander Decker, I thought you were the captain. And Decker says, well, Captain Kirk, being sarcastic, has full confidence in me. And then Kirk goes, and in you too, Lieutenant. And then her next line is, my oath of celibacy is on record. Where did the idea of celibacy come from? Right. There wasn't it, even a lot of visual cues of, of hey, there's some 
sexual tension here. So why Nothing. do you have to go there? Nothing. So it's like taking taking chapters out of a book and going in one line trying to make it obvious and it wasn't that obvious. And then Shatner says it with such his emphasis on that that line is so strange. Um you know, he's almost he's judging her the way Shatner delivered that line. Yeah. I don't, I have no idea. I think that's just left in there. I think to the writers, Livingston and Roddenberry, it made sense to something that they wrote in a version of the script that was 10 versions ago. Right. But to the viewer, it was like, what the hell was that? Is yeah. my oath of celibacy is on record. Is that because she's afraid that Kirk's a horn dog from the series and going to jump her or <laughs> I don't know. I would be afraid. But, but And that's just one example, but that script, it's interesting because all of those conversations that we had about the script, it just came but flooding back in my, my memory when yeah. I saw that section on here. Well, there's a 70s trick flashback. I like that. I thought it was interesting, too, that, that she's talking about the special effects, and they're all excited about hiring Robert Abel. And associates. And, and she says, and I'll quote, we believe that Robert Abel and associates have shown a sense of taste and creativity, which will lend itself well to our movie. Yikes. Yes. Robert Abel and associates end up getting fired because <laughs> of an extreme go. lack of, of production on their part. Right. And then what Not they did deliver. produce was horrible. Yes. But I, again, I know this is prior to all of that. So, Right. And she was very happy that they were coming on. Of course, she mentions, yeah, and they were responsible for the recent 7-Up and Levi commercials. Like, okay, I I searched for the commercials. I couldn't find them. You didn't um, find one for the Uncola? I Well, I didn't. I was, I probably didn't search correctly. But it was, okay, they did commercials. That applies to a mo- major motion picture. How is that all you have, Susan? Yeah, right. Yeah, it's kind of scary. Okay, yeah. so stuck in my mind now, right? We talked about yeah. we're talking about Seven Up. Do you remember the ones in the late seventies, early eighties with the man from uh, Live and Let Die, the James Bond movie? Yes. And he's oh, this is the Uncola. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can't do that justice. No, I don't can't. know. I had to get that out. It was stuck in my mind. It was like a, I, I, I wasn't going to function until I got that out of my head. Okay. So. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you got that out. I don't think anybody listening is. Um, yeah. Construction on the sets are continuing. I think the set construction went on obviously a really long time and they're adding more pieces to it. They talk about, or she talks about the engine room and the transporter room um, yeah. and then goes into a mailbag section. The mailbag section. Oh. Which, as we said earlier. Both of them were epic fails. Both There were two letters. Oh. Both were epic fails. Uh, so do you want to read the first one? Well, So, so the first one, um, and I'll it's, read it's this. It's a good question. Yeah, I'll read this verbatim. Um, and I'm not going to mention who it was like she did. Um but the question is, I'd like to know if Gene L. Kuhn, the producer of Star Trek for its first two seasons, were returned for the new Star Trek. Also, if Joseph 
um, and I'll mess up the last Pavney? intro. Joseph yeah. Pavney. Pavney and Mark Daniels, two of the show's best directors will return. And it's like, okay. And she's very nice. Unfortunately, the very talented Mr. Kuhn passed away a few years ago. And <laughs> like I, that's I, right. just like a big way to cement fell on the table. Boom. Oh, okay. Yeah. She should have just said, He's dead, Jim. Oh god. Well, that would have been one way to handle it. <laughs> but it's like, okay, why do you, why would you so basically why would you include that in this article and basically embarrass the crap out of this person? I, I agree. Uh, you just don't have to answer that letter. Right. Publicly. Unless you only got two letters. Right. Unless you. <laughs> but there had I'd to make be a, one up. There I'd had make to be one a up. better one. Yes. Right? Little Kelly in Lisbon, Ohio asks. I mean, you know, just make one up. It's got to be right. better than, than bringing out poor Mr. Coon, who's passed away. <sighs> and then she goes on to talk about, you know, the only director we've signed is Robert Collins. I th- yeah. think Joe Pevity probably would have done a better job than Mr. Collins or possibly yeah. Robert Wise, to be honest yeah. with you. Well, the um, the deceased Coon might do a better job as a producer. Right? Oh. Wow. Kelly's throwing some sharp ones today. Ooh. Duck. The, the next letter uh, is from Elsa in Alexandria, Virginia. And, and she was talking about the maturity level of Vulcans with their extended life. She postulated that a 23-year-old Vulcan would be equivalent to a 12-year-old human. Yes, to, to a 12-year-old human, to which Susan gave some different reasons why maybe that wasn't the case and then ended with more likely Vulcans age. Well, that's, yeah. that's actually a pretty good comeback that that is. And but she kind of slams her earlier on a little bit. Yeah. So, citing bit. examples, even using the not necessarily Canon animated episode of yesteryear. Seems like she may have had a burr under her saddle for this one. Maybe there was a lot going on in the Star Trek offices. and Yes. Yeah. A burr under her saddle. A burr under her saddle. I don't know where these things come from. They just pop in. I don't know either. So um, we appreciate you listening. If, uh, if you listened to 70s Trek at all, you know we told the story of Star Trek in the 70s from a position where it started to where it ended. And that podcast came to an end. And, and that was that. And we were happy to tell that story. But we've kind of been um, itching. There's a burr under our saddle, so to speak. Again. Again. To do another podcast. And so uh, we're in the works of uh, or in taking those steps to create that now. Anything you want to say about that, Cal? We're coming soon. I love it. Yeah. So look for us um, in the next, hopefully next few months. We're going to start getting back out there and with whatever our Star Trek incartation is going to be thanks for listening make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our facebook group live long and may the force be with you nanu nanu this show is brought to you by hollow sweet media computer list other available hollow sweet media programs Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Beyond Farpoint, a Star Trek The Next Generation podcast. 
why, why, where is this drama coming from? Why is Picard being a right arse, arsehole to, to his to his first officer? Yeah, and also as well the um, uh, oh, does a captain's life mean nothing to you then? Yes, yeah. This is very weird strange. tension. It's it's weird. You Riker's addicted to Geordie. Picard's addicted to, to Riker. <laughs> You've got um, Crusher being aloof to everyone. You've got Tasha being over-earnest. Loading Holosuite Preview Programme 4, Her First Trek, a Star Trek review podcast. And he's like, you what, Doctor? And the Doctor's like, that's right, Captain. I will have your guts for garters. <laughs> I'm trying to work out whose writing I would have preferred for that scene then, yours or the writer of the episode. I mean, do you even need to ask? I would have made it spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> Probably bring glitter and things involved in it, yours. McCoy throws Undoubtedly. glitter Undoubtedly. Kirk and it just takes on a whole And do you know how they solve the situation? Dance off! Oh, and a disco ball drops down from the ceiling and Kirk's like, I had that installed when we first moved in. I've been waiting to use it. <laughs> disco ball on a bridge, that'd yeah. be great. I can imagine RuPaul steps up then. Yeah. Know. If you can't yeah. love yourself. Oh, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? Can I get an amen up in here? Amen. All right, now let the music play. Computer, deactivate Holosuite. Shh.